if you could all turn with your physical Bibles or on your Bible apps to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it to themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and, the, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by the clans and their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. All right, that is the end of the reading today. Um, I'd just like to send off the kids downstairs for children's ministry. Bye, kids. Everyone wave. Bye, kids. Have fun! Yay! <laughs> Look at the excitement tingling in their eyes.
Bye, everyone. Okay. I'd just like to invite up our speaker and Pastor Dave. He'll be preaching the Word of God. Give me a second. Uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Our Lord Jesus, we turn our eyes to you today, this morning. We look for you uh, in this text. We look for you in your word. We want to know you. We want to meet you. We want to know your good love and pleasure over us again. Your smile destroys our shame and our, sh and our condemnation and our guilt and our religion. Would you be glorified in our midst? Would you speak through me, an imperfect vessel, so that we might come to you? and worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in um, a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And we started this series just last week on Sunday. And we're in this series because we're looking at uh, the Israelites, God's people coming out of exile and in the time of Nehemiah to rebuild. Uh, they've been scattered all over the world for a really long time, for about 70 years, and really that's kind of our sense as a church. Over the past few, few years, we've experienced uh, some uncharted territory. We've experienced some things that uh, we didn't expect, not just with the pandemic, but you know, with different transitions at our church, transitions in leadership, transitions in location, so we can learn from the example of Nehemiah. And today we're looking at the idea of opposition, or opposition. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think about this word opposition. For me, when I hear this word opposition, uh, it takes my mind straight to rugby. Good old uh, Australian, or actually English sport uh, that they brought over to Australia. Um, and I played rugby, uh, even though it doesn't look like I've ever played rugby. Uh, I, I played rugby, actually, in primary school because my parents sent me to a school where they only offered rugby as a sport, and sport was compulsory, so I had to play rugby. And my first impression of the sport was just opposition, right, that word. It didn't make sense to my juvenile, innocent, young mind that all I had to do was take the ball and try to cross that line as I would continuously run into this wall of kids, wall of people. And since becoming an, uh, an adult, right, and like I've, I've come to realize that there's you know, more to rugby than just taking the ball and just bricking yourself against the wall of people. There's finesse, yes, there's tactics, there's nuance, but for an eight-year-old, there's no nuance, there's no, there's no tactics, there's no finesse. It's literally one team of little people crashing into another wall of little people, falling over, uh, gaining maybe five meters at a time, getting up and doing it again, 
and there's a point where you almost reach that try line, that line that you have to cross to score. You get this close to the line, and it's like the opposition just becomes insurmountable. You cannot cross. You cannot break through. The opposition just increases. And you know, I remember our first game as 80-year-olds. None of us knew what we were doing. We reached that point where we could see that line, and we could not break through. And we cried. And we were sad. We'd, you know, our coach, of course, encouraged us. And you know, we had to give the ball up. That was okay. We didn't score. But we experienced that sensation of the more you move forward, the more this opposition seemed to increase. And it's exactly what we see in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 4, passage that we just read. The temple's been rebuilt, right? There's been progress. The people are working really hard, and the walls are finally beginning to go up. But even as the people are moving forward, there's this ever-increasing opposition. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that in your own Christian life? Can you relate to that as a member of this church? That as we seemingly move forward, there's an increasing opposition. And it's not going to be something that we can just brute force our way through, like a rugby game. But there are lessons that we must learn, lessons of prayer and dependence on the Lord that we see in Nehemiah, that we see in the people here. And as we go through the text today, I just want to look at three characters that come up in our text to see what we can learn. And the first is this guy that we read about in verse 1. His name is Sanballat. Who is this guy? Well, he is a man who is about to become a king, the king of Samaria, right, a neighboring country. And verse 1 says, Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And you have to ask yourself, okay, so this guy's a king. I get that. Why is he so mad? Why is he so angry about this small country of ragtag, exiled people coming back together to just build this little wall? Why does that even matter to him? You know, this would be, for instance, like uh, if you're a homeowner or if, you know, just if, you, if you've lived in a house a lot before. This would be like you deciding to build a fence around your house. And all of a sudden, the premier of Victoria has a massive problem you know, with it. He gets furious about it. It does, doesn't make any sense. It's very strange. That's what's happening here. Why is he so mad? It doesn't make sense. But it does if you're a man who is motivated by greed. It makes sense if you're a man who's threatened by what you stand to lose from this war going up. And the reality is Sanballat is a man who stands to lose a lot. He stands to lose a lot of power and a lot of money if the Jews were to build this wall. He's a man who's built his own walls of safety and, and security in his life, but these are walls that have been built out of greed. And he stands to lose a lot politically and financially if this wall goes up. And I'm, uh, I just, I turned 33 uh, about a month ago. And I am not, I'm the furthest thing from a sage, wise person, right? I've, I'm still learning a lot. When it comes to life experience, I'm learning a lot. But I've been alive for long enough to know that greed can wreck and ravage our lives. 
And greed isn't something that has to be so like obvious, so comic book, so Hollywood, like, you know, Hollywood de depictions of greedy villains like Ebenezer Scrooge or, or Lex Luthor, right? But greed can grip all of us, every single one of us, myself included. I, I know there are some of us here who work 80 hours a week under the umbrella of I'm providing for my family. I'm giving them a, a roof over their heads. I'm taking them on vacations. I'm not saying that you know, those are bad things, but I am saying that when we build this wall of a bank account, there are times where we can be, at the same time, uh, building walls of loneliness in our homes. And what families need more than just roofs and great assets and great meals are husbands and fathers, right? wives and mothers, not just roofs and amazing possessions. I think greed can uh, grip all of us in the most subtle ways. And a few years ago, uh, some of you may know this about me, before COVID, um, I had this really crazy bad flu. Uh, and I developed a cough that just completely took me out. I was coughing so hard, I, I cracked some ribs. Um, and it was so bad, I had to go see a doctor. I took a chest x-ray. And um, I remember on that day, I took the chest x-ray. I just went about my day. I got a call from him a couple of hours later, and he told me that I have to come in immediately. And I went to see him, and he said that I may have a cancerous mass on my lung. And later I found out that that wasn't the case. But in that moment, right, in that moment, when your heart is racing, when your hands start to, to tremble, to shake, a bank account, a retirement fund will do less than zero for your soul. Do nothing for your soul. And you know, even then I was so grateful to be surrounded by family. I was so grateful to be you know, with Heidi. Um, and I, you know, I, I love them. I'm thankful for them. But the truth is, even in that moment, there was nothing that they could do for my soul either. And in that moment, you have the Lord. And that night, um, I sat on my bed, and I was so afraid. I was so afraid, and I started weeping. And I just thought about what I believe in. I thought about the gospel, and as the gospel settled deep into my soul, I, I realized I actually believe this stuff. I believe in Jesus. I believe that death is not the end. I believe that I have eternal life because of him and in him. And you know that those moments when you get that call, and maybe you haven't got that call yet, but one day all of us will get that call. Every single one of us will get that call. And on that day, walls built by greed will collapse. But walls built by the gospel will stand. See, material possessions will not stand in the face of death but Jesus does. Reputation and legacy will fade away and not stand in the face of death, but Jesus does. Even our attachment and our affection, our love for our families will not stand in the face of death, but Jesus does. And what we learn from this guy Sanballat is this. Walls built by greed will collapse. They're walls that all of us are susceptible to. But walls built by the gospel will stand.
Next, I want to look at Nehemiah. So in verses 2 to 3, Sanballat and Tobiah the Ammonite, they openly humiliate Nehemiah and the Israelites. They say, those guys are going to fail. The slightest crack in the wall, it's all going to come tumbling down. This is like a really brazen, open-handed kind of humiliation. And the question that we need to ask today is this. Is the church treated the same today as the Israelites were back then? Is the church treated in the same way today as the Israelites were back then with this kind of open-handed humiliation? And I think the answer is yes. There are definitely parts of the world where this kind of open-handed humiliation is a lot more out in the open. It's a lot more clear-cut. Right? You only have to Google the words prayers for martyrs. Right? Just do that when you get home. Just to read about the, the, the reality of this kind of humiliation, this kind of persecution that the church faces in certain parts of the world. But what about us? What about here in Australia? What about in a first world Western nation like Australia, a metropolitan city like Sydney? I think the answer is still yes. I think the answer is still yes. We still face a kind of humiliation, a fear of humiliation in our workplaces, in our friendships, right? in our culture. There's an increasing hostility to the values that flow out of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the values that flow out of God is love. No one has a problem with those values. Everyone loves to hear that. I'm talking about the values that flow out of God is holy. That offends everyone. That offends some of us. It's really hard to talk about Jesus in the workplace. It's really hard to talk about Jesus with our friends. With our friends, it's also even really hard to talk about Jesus with our families at times. For fear of this humiliation. But think about the gospel. It's this very collision of divine holiness and divine love that makes the cross so beautiful, right, so wonderful. It's divine holiness that demands payment for our sin. It collides with the divine love that invites sinners to the foot of the cross to be forgiven. But let's see how Nehemiah responds. Verse 4 this is what he says to this open humiliation. Hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captors. Do not cover the guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And his first response is prayer, right? That's what we see here. And to be honest, this really challenges me. Does it challenge you? I don't know about you, but historically, uh, prayer is not the leading response of my life. And I'm much more of a, let's just give it a go. Let's give it a crack. Let's build first and then pray as we go along kind of guy. But if you do look at this prayer, it's a little, it's a little hard to swallow because we also read in the Bible about you know, Jesus teaching us to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute you. But that's not what a, Nehemiah is praying at all. He's praying that God would end them that God would destroy them. And this is one of those parts of the Bible where, sorry, 
iPad. Sorry, guys. I'm not used to this iPad. This is one of those parts of the Bible where we see this example and we have a think about what's actually happening here. This is not teaching us to pray like this. When we come into contact with opposition and enemies, we're not taught to pray, God, end them. God, just destroy, just kill them. Like, I don't need this in my life. That's not what we're seeing here. What we are seeing here is the humanity of Nehemiah. He is a human being. He's not some lofty guy that we can never aspire to be. Like, he is a human being. He's so honest. They've been battling captivity. They've come back. They've had opposition building the temple. Now they have opposition building the walls. And he's just saying, is this ever going to end? Just end them, God. I'm so tired. I'm so sick of this. The same thing that we see in the Psalms. Lord, where are you? I can't find you. Where are you? I need you. I trust you. Lord, where are you? I can't find you. I need you. I trust you. Look, guys, God is not after us pretending that we're doing better than we really are. He knows exactly how we're doing. And in the face of opposition, God's not after us lying to him about how hard it is, about how we really feel. Saying that everything is manageable, it's going to be okay, but to come to him and to cry out to him, just honestly. And then if you look at verse 7, it says this, But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So Nehemiah's prayer, like he's, he's prayed, Lord, turn them around, end this opposition, end them. And here's what we see here. He's prayed, it's getting worse. He's prayed and it's getting worse. I wonder if that's ever been your experience. You pray and it doesn't get better, it gets worse. See, so often we ask the Lord for something, we pray for it, and we don't get the answer that we want, and we'll bail. We'll just walk away. But not Nehemiah. Praise God. Look what he does. Verse 9. And we prayed to our God, set a guard as a protection against him day and night. So now he gathers the people. They pray together. It's not just honest individual prayers, but they get together and they start praying together. And they pray these vigilant prayers. Not just God help me, help me, help me. This is so hard. They're not just casually unaware of the dangers that they face, but they pray for protection. They pray for a God. And New Testament describes a little similar situation for us, for the church in Ephesians 6. Stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And the reality is there are spiritual enemies attacking the church day in and day out. The reality is that for some of us sitting here today, we're being spiritually attacked right now. And the reality is there's a call here to not face that on your own, to not just get out your frustrations and your struggles 
but to come together, to pray together, to pray for one another, to get prayer, to pray that God would protect and guide, to experience the breakthrough and the testimony of God's grace in the gospel at work in our lives. Maybe you've experienced that before. I know I have. I know there have been times where I've just been unable to push through things on my own, sometimes for years. And in the moment that you ask for prayer, in the moment that you can boldly confess, I need prayer for this, there is a great liberty, there's a great freedom that comes from that. It's a great testimony, there's a great blessing for the whole church as we come together to testify to the power of God's grace. As we see together Satan's lies being demolished in our lives. We can't do it on our own. But we can experience it together as a church. And finally, the last kind of character that I want to look at is the people. What do we learn from the people? Well, verse 10 says this. In Judah, it was said, the strength, the strength of those who bear the burdens is, is failing. <coughs> There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So what's happening here is it's just too much for the Jews. All right, they're looking around and they're, they're going, this is too much. Yeah, this is the rubble's too much. The opposition is too much. It's happening again. There's no way we cannot do this. Let's just go home. And what do you do when the opposition that you face is internal? What do you do when the opposition that you face comes from within? I know that many of us probably feel that way. Many of us probably feel like there are certain relationships, there are certain circumstances, there are failures that we bear in our lives that seem insurmountable, that seem too far gone, like there's no hope anymore. Maybe it's a relationship in your life that's too far gone. Maybe it's your marriage that feels like it's too far gone. Maybe it's an illness or a condition that feels like it's too far gone. Or maybe it's your own sin that just keeps coming back over and over again. And every day you're just warring inside of yourself. And it's a war that you feel like you can't win. And if that's you, this is what Nehemiah says. This is how we address the people. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah's call is to remember the Lord. That's my call to you, for all of us, myself included. Remember the Lord. 
Yeah, for the Jews, whenever you hear that phrase, it's very specific. Whenever you hear anyone telling you to remember the Lord, it's not just some random thing that he did for you. Your mind goes straight back to the Exodus story. Remember how you were in captivity, in slavery in Egypt. Remember how I delivered you. Remember how I promised you a Messiah. And his call to us, his call to me and to you, is to remember our own exodus in Christ. It's to remember Jesus. It's to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It sounds so simple, but I really want to invite you and challenge you to ponder what that actually means. Remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember how God in His mercy and grace chased you down. Remember how He chased all of us down. I remember how He chased me down. When I think about how He chased me down, I think about uh, my journey of coming to this church. And it was after a long time of jadedness and apathy when it came to the church. It was, I don't think I had a real uh, I think I had a lot of great experiences, but I didn't know the real Jesus. And I just remember that there was nothing in me, there was nothing at all in me that the Lord said, you're worth saving. There was nothing in me that the Lord said, you're someone who the church needs. Uh, the church you know, will do a lot better with you. There was nothing that I had to offer. It was purely by God's mercy and by God's grace, that he saved me. And you too. You too. Do you remember the Lord? Do you remember this Lord? Because we forget, we get sidetracked, we get numb you know, by the things that we go through in life all the time. But when we do remember the Lord, this Lord, who in mercy and grace saved us, who saved you, we're humbled, and our hearts are changed. The affections of our hearts become reordered, and life makes sense again. See, there will be opposition. We've all experienced it, and I'm not going to stand here and tell you that being a Christian, being, you know, on mission for Jesus, being a member of this body means that things are going to be better and better and better. That's just not the case. That's not what we see here. There's going to be opposition as we move forward in our Christian walks. There's going to be opposition as we mo move forward in this church. And sometimes it'll feel like that opposition is increasing. But true safety absolute safety, the place where there is no harm that could come to our souls. That's not going to be found in building our own walls, right? building our own walls of greed, building our own walls of community, building our own walls of this church. Now, true safety, true safety, absolute safety, shelter for our souls, is only found in the perfect wall.
And Jesus became our perfect wall when he died for our sins so that we would be covered and protected from the wrath of God, a holy God. For the judgment our sins deserved. And in his resurrection, he defeated death and Satan, our great enemy. See, that's really the picture that we see in verse 18 here uh, at the end of our passage. Uh, Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet uh, was beside me. They've prayed. They've committed themselves to the Lord. And they're rebuilding, but they're also getting ready to protect themselves, to, to fight against the enemy. In the gospel, Jesus has done those things already. Do you remember this, Lord? Because like I said, so often, it's so easy to forget. Remember the Lord. Remember Jesus. Remember him vigilantly. Remember him constantly. Remember him enduringly. And that is the way forward through all things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray for help right now uh, through the power and the counsel, the leading of your Holy Spirit for all of us gathered here today to remember you. I don't say that lightly, God. I earnestly ask more than just recollection, more than just images, more than just sensations and feelings. Take us to a deep place, to the very core of our beings, where we would sincerely and genuinely remember you as the Lord, as the Savior, as the good friend who you have been to all of us. I just pray for today. In your name we pray. Amen.